nerds, this is Nicole Desane. Welcome to Talent Tales, the show where I interview leaders who have brought design thinking to their talent and HR practices. In today's episode, we have two special guests on the show. I'm joined by Dr. Valerie Tony Parker, Chief People Officer at Chicago Public Media, and Steve Bynum, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Manager at Chicago Public Media. Welcome, Valerie and Steve. And I'm, Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm super excited because today is a first uh, on the show. Um, not only are we going to hear from the HR perspective, but also from the participant perspective, right? Uh, so I'm super, super excited about that. I'm also, I'm not going to lie, a bit nervous since I have experts from the radio space on my very, very low production value podcast <laughs> here. So I'm not going to lie. So... <laughs> You'd be surprised at how high quality your production value is, because I've seen it all. You're fine. Trust me, Nicole. So thank you for that. All right, let's dive right in. So we always start with, um, what's your story? Valerie, if you want to start, and then Steve. Yeah, I, um, my story, you know, um, in asking that question, Nicole, you, you made it clear that you didn't want us to do the HR walk, you know, walk through your career. Um, I think my story, as people get to know me, is that I'm, I'm really a perpetual millennial. Um, by that, I mean, I'm always seeking to push against, you know, systems of injustice. I'm always trying to find a better way. I'm always asking the questions, you know, why, why, why are we doing this? And I'm not satisfied with, with answers. And I'm always using my voice, you know, for the marginalized. But at the same time, I always am in need of friends, if you will, to play at recess. So there's this kid-like uh, side of me that people don't really uh, know about me. And because of the work that I do and the stress that it brings, I keep a pickleball paddle, a tennis racket, and a basketball with me wherever I go, because you never know when somebody's going to ask you to play on their team. So that's a little bit about who I am. You're hilarious. That's, yeah. that's about the most exciting, I think, intro <laughs> I've heard so far on the show. Steve, a high bar to follow. Yeah. Let's try it. I'm not even going to try. Uh, I'll say that, you know, uh, the Reverend Doctor has a great deal in common with me in that I'm a sports nut as well. And um, I can look at uh, my story through the lens of um, sports as far as just bringing people together in community, not necessarily competition. Um, but on the other side of that, uh, my story starts in Memphis, Tennessee with um Charlie Henry McGuire and Eddie Blanche McGuire, my great grandparents um, who brought into the world 14 people, um, one of which was my grandmother, Eula Ray Bynum, who raised me. And um, the journey that I take to Memphis every year to see my family, uh, my big, huge extended family is so much about who I am and what makes me who I am. And so from that, ex that Southern experience, that background, and the community that um, I grew up in when I spent those summers in Memphis and then bringing it to Chicago and then having the opportunity to um, have these global experiences and Chicago being a global city and meeting people from all over the world, it really pulled into focus this notion of global citizenship that I as an African-American man can draw my strength from being a part of the global majority rather than an ethnic minority. And that that global citizenship um, is a tool to defeat systemic racism and otherisms. And knowing that I'm part of this huge diaspora of humanity um, and then following in the tradition of my heroes like Frederick Douglass and Josephine Baker and Paul Robeson, 
who left the United States in order to find their true authentic selves and then brought those global experiences back to us in this country to help change the world. And so that's really at the heart of who I am. It's the roots that I come from in Memphis, Tennessee, though I was born and raised in Chicago. And then it's those global experiences that really helped to form and shape me. Incredible. I want to say equally inspiring. I really, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to weigh in which one is more inspiring. I'm, I'm inspired by both of you. Anyway, yeah, now, so, now you see why we work so well together. I, I know. Where were you, where I were know. you in 1990 and 91 and 92? Yeah. You, where were you? I was in high school in Germany. In Germany. So you saw the fall of communism. I'd say that's a pretty big deal. That's I, no small I thing. I did. I did. That's true. Yeah, all kind of topical these days. Um, anyway, <laughs> but uh, let's talk about something that our listeners love to hear about. And that's each of your superpower. So why don't we start with Steve this time? Um, what's your superpower? Um, my superpower, I think, is the ability to um, put people at ease and to do that by um, showing that we have a common humanity. Um, I'm six foot six, you know, I'm an African-American male. Um, by a lot of stereotypes, I can be imposing. And so, um, but, you know, I'm a big teddy bear. People tell me that all the time, you know, even though I play football. And so I, the ability just to let people know that I am a safe space and that I'm vulnerable, just like you are. And, um, did you have a visual? I do have a visual. It's a, it's a very bad visual and shame <laughs> on you for making me draw this bloody thing. But it's, um, if there you can you see, there are clouds uh -huh. floating by and then there's a person there and then they go, oh, with their hands in the air. It's the realization that you're okay. You, I want to help you get to your happy place. You know, I want the sea rolling by. I want to, I want you to be able to pick up a seashell and hear, I love white noise and all. So that's kind of who I am. Uh, and I would say that it, there's a quote from um, a second century BC Roman playwright. His name was Terence. And he said in one of his plays, I am human. And I think nothing human is alien to me. Mm. And so just that common shared humanity, I think that we can just open doors for a conversation and whether they're tough conversations or easy conversations, but that we're all the same. You know, we all mm -hmm. love and want to be loved. Love it. So it's so long-winded. Well, you can tell he has not spent enough time in HR. Um, <laughs> that is what you can tell from that. Yeah. Because he's out there with the clouds and he's feeling good. But as for me, um, <laughs> my superpower is, for those who indulge in adult beverages, and even if they don't, is is wine. I, I think there is something historical about what wine does. Um, for the listeners, they don't know um, that I am bivocational. I'm a, a social justice theologian and um, an HR practitioner. And um, so both of these worlds are not in conflict, but in uh, cooperation with one another. And so for me, uh, wine is, um, is it's, um, what brings people to the table. Uh, what allows people to, as Steve said, relax themselves to be in conversation. Um, it allows for the building of relationships. And 
um, and, there, and I see it metaphorically as well. There's a, a piece of text that talks about not pouring new wine into old wine skins. And so when I think about how people want to grow, when I think about uh, how we want to change systemic uh, issues, we can't continue to pour the same uh, words or the same actions into that wineskin or nothing will be transformed. And so uh, it is both a tool to, uh, to build relationships, but also a metaphor that reminds us that uh, change can only happen by, a lot, uh, by us doing things that are different. And so I, I think I, 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 my drawing was a little bit easier because if I can't draw a bottle, <laughs> there's a there's Love a it. There is a problem. And the lesson for me is I should do these more on Friday afternoons because I, <laughs> <laughs> right. I can more of them. Which is the reason why this is everybody's superpower on Friday. Right. That's right. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Bourbon's so, my superpower. So. Yeah, there you go. Maybe you should <laughs> next time. Um, awesome. Let's dive into design thinking. Um, Valerie, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit more about how you discovered design thinking and how you've applied it at Chicago Public Media. Yeah. Um, I was I was reintroduced to it actually at Chicago Public Media, but was introduced to it probably about five or six years ago when I was doing some consulting work and uh, set up shop in an incubator at the Polsky Center of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business Businesses Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship. And uh, being in a collective group with other uh, scholars or other um, entrepreneurs, uh, I was introduced to this tool as a way of uh, problem solving thinking. Um, and uh, what I liked about it was that immediate solution that we're always apt to latch on to because what we don't do is sit with the problem long enough. It, uh, does not necessarily afford us the best solution. Uh, one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing design thinking work at, um, at Chicago Public Media is because it offers an opportunity to change the culture, a culture where people have felt that their voices have not been heard, a culture where people want to kind of feel that they have some agency over transformation of culture. This allows for that. I also um, like the interdisciplinary or the multi multidisciplinary approach uh, to, um, to design thinking, which engages people who would not otherwise uh, come together to identify what the real problem is, not be told what the problem is, but to collectively identify it. Mm -hmm. And to really critically think collectively uh, about how they will solve for it. And I love this push-pull tension in that space, because it is a space, if done well, which it was done well by Unicol, it creates safety. And so we can kind of push against uh, immediate solutions. And uh, we'll probably talk when you ask us a little bit more about what we've done with our work. It allows for people to kind of test out this safe space. Um, and it allows them to know that they have a cohort of people who are backing them up as they introduce solutions that may be what? That may put uh, new wine into these uh, new wine skins. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that's what I loved about it. And that's what I think really helped sell the organization. It was not gonna be a top down, we'll tell you what the solution is. It was not gonna be a performative type of solution, but it really needed to be one that was co-created and thought deeply about over and against what the problem was. Mm, yeah, 
love that. Before we go to Steve, just a quick reminder, um, we have prepared questions and then there's time at the end of the um, webinar for you to ask questions. So if you have them, please pop them in the chat and we'll get to them at the end. So Steve, I'm super curious because as I said, this is the first to have an actual, now you are in HR, but when you know we went to, through this specific design thinking activity, you were on staff still. So you were a participant of design thinking. And I'm just so curious to learn what was that like for you? You know, it, it would be difficult for me to add it a lot more to, to what um, the Reverend Doctor already said, but what I would say is that um, where I am now as an HR professional and where I, where I was at staff, that it's part of the same continuum and journey, and that the principles of design thinking that I had learned and acquired um, when I was a staffer, I'm still going to apply. Here's the thing: when I first was introduced to you, when uh, when Valerie introduced us to you, I thought, okay, all right, here's another consultant, and they're going to give us the consultancy word salad, blah, blah, blah. We'll do some exercises, do some post-it notes. Here's the parking lot. We'll put stuff over there, blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. Here's your report. See you later. Mm -hmm. I was pleasantly shocked, surprised, and um, actually unsettled by uh, what you brought, Nicole, because what what I discovered was that there was a great deal of ambiguity. Mm. There was, and, and that we, which made me really uneasy. And then I realized that the ambiguity is the point, right? So design thinking is something that comes out of a, um, truly your own orientation. So where am I, you know, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, um, how risk averse am I, um, how willing am I to embrace the reality that we don't know what we don't know? And then through this process, learning how to think and work together, you become, you're no longer outcome-based and you're process-based. It's the journey that got you there. And then the humility that's required to say that the answer that I might've come up with on my own may not necessarily be the best answer. Or it may be the best answer, but what's most important is the community, the solution that the community came together with, the, the restoration and the, and, and, the, and the relationship building and the power that comes from collective thinking and organizing um, is really what this was about. And so now I see this as less about a tool and more about a way of living, mm -hmm. a way of, of, of thinking and processing and taking in the world. And so, whereas some companies would use people, like professionals like yourself, as a way to sort of provide cover to say that they did their due diligence, what, um, what Valerie has done is she's brought us this tool that actually empowers and emboldens us. And then it kind of puts you out on the plank a little bit. So now you've got to deliver. Now you've got to do the work. Instead of pointing to the HR people and saying, okay, fix this for us or do this for us. You turn it around or flip the script, so to speak, and say, no, it's on you, right? And so now everybody's got skin in the game. I would say the most important thing, though, is that this can't work unless you have people above you and leadership who are willing to support 
the work and who are willing to back you up, even if you come to conclusions that they may not necessarily agree with, but they're willing to give you that power and that space to do it and to implement it. So I think that's what was really um, what landed with me the most. Well, and I think to add just really quickly mm-hmm. to what Steve said, the, the, the noise, the positive noise that this work created has bled over into other departments such that I've heard people say um, real casually, um, but it, with intention, uh, we, should, we, we should do design thinking. Now, that's because one person from that cohort was in a larger part of the organization and has talked about their experience. And so what it allows for, if, you, if done well, is um, it allows itself to be a tool that the entire organization can use. We used it specifically for one DEI at, uh, so, uh, problem that we wanted to solve for. But um, uh, as we talk about building culture across, organ, across the organization, uh, with the with the uh, newsroom, who may not necessarily um, uh, interact uh, a lot with finance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, coming together uh, and um, both agreeing that there is a tool that they can use collectively has started to be the narrative that at least that I'm starting to hear. Mm. And so I mean, so inspiring. But but you and you hinted at some of the because I want to talk a little bit about barriers, because that's what people like to hear about, because what might they encounter, and you hinted at it, there might be individual barriers of each individual participating, possibly, how ready they are, uh, growth mindset, things like that. There might be organizational barriers, there might be leadership related barriers. Is there anything that you encounter that you can share? I, I think the biggest barrier was, was fear. Um, mm the fear to name the problem. Um, Because if we name the problem uh, in our context, it means that we are saying leadership has this problem, right? This is something leadership has done wrong. And and Stephen, I have heard that. Um, The fear to engage in executing a solution that was never tried. Well, we've never done that before. I don't know enough about that. And so uh, along the journey, that particular sentiment continued to rise to the top and it had to be dealt with by continuing to uh, create this safe space, uh, continue to empower them through. And I think one way we did this was um, when we got into our group to work on the pitch deck, we talked about research. I don't know enough about uh, truth and reconciliation, which, uh, which was the model Steve's team came up with. I don't know anything about it. Steve went back and held them to task and said, this is not about the leadership team. This is about the solution we all agreed upon. So now you have to do your research. Well, well, well that means if we're asking uh, leaders to account for uh, things that they have done that have uh, created a tra- traumatic environment, they won't do that. No, let's not solve for that, right? Let's present the solution as one that we expect to hold them account to. And so, in an environment that has experienced trauma, um, fear is the guidepost, and which is why I was deeply excited to hear other people around the organization talking about design thinking, even though they had not been involved in it, because they must have heard some measure of a relaxation of the fear from their colleague um, at some point, you know, as we journey through our, our, our program. Steve, I don't know if you want to say something added to that. 
No, you, you really hit on it. Um, and then when you're making fear-based decisions, um, it, it creates a cloud and it blinds you, right? Um, sometimes, you know, um, we think that we're walking in darkness, but when we're actually just, we have our backs to the sun and we're staring at our shadows. And it's just a really, it's a point of just changing your orientation. So what design thinking does is that it empowers you. It won't change it for you, but it will empower you to do the work and it will create as, um, the Reverend Doctor said, the safe space for you to do it. Um, and then on top of all of that, you begin to see the growth, right? And then when you, when you hear these fear-based responses on the surface, you, you can't just look at that response. You have to see what's underneath that. And then we find that there's trauma. We find that there's a broken trust. Um, we find that there's despair or hopelessness. And so if you can just create a path, which is hope, and then it say to them, take a step. I'm not asking you to run the whole mile, take a step. And then they take the step and then they look around and go, oh, okay, this is good. And then they take another step and another step. And then you begin to see the power within them. And then they're excited. They can't wait. And so instead of this sort of, oh, we're going to have this meeting to talk about the pitch deck at three o'clock and then they look at it at 2.45 and, and it started there. But then by the end, it's sort of like, hey, let's get together every other week, a week, let's get, let's have these ad hoc meetings. Let's just do it, do it, do it. And then that power and that strength begins to just bubble from them because you've gotten to the root problem of healing the trauma and the broken trust. Incredible. And I was going to ask about impact, but to me, you already answered that. To me, that's the impact, unless you want to add something. But if that is what's accomplished, you know, coming amazing. in, yeah, coming in um, as the head of HR and seeing survey results that talk about trust and the lack of it and, and the devaluing of people to see even the mildest of evolution of trust being restored, that to me is the impact because without trust, the organization simply cannot do anything with and through its people. That's an mm -hmm. excellent point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing. Again, reminder, if you have questions, please put them in the chat. I have a few more. Um, what's your favorite design thinking resource or hack? Either of you can start. I, um, I like Change by Design. That's the, uh, by Tim Brown. That's the book mm -hmm. that got me started. Um, there's a quote in it that uh, really uh, resonated with me. And it, and it said, you know, it's, it leads up to it. And it, uh, it's, it says, our real goal is helping people articulate the latent needs they may not even know they have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beauty of design thinking, identifying the needs, the problem that they don't even know that they have. And, and this has been our challenge and our reward uh, as we use it in Chicago uh, public media. Um, we started out with a question about how do we ensure, this was the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council, how do we ensure that we have uh, an inclusive environment where people feel, feel valued? And we we, you know, we got the state answers like uh, pronouns and other things, and I'm not minimizing that, but that's, that's, that's a very uh, performative solution to a much deeper problem. And we moved all the way to truth and reconciliation, uh, a problem they didn't even know they had or mm. couldn't define it as such. 
And I think without design thinking, we would have remained in this space of uh, traditional problem solving methodologies that answer, uh, yes. uh, provide a solution to a problem that may not even really be the problem. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, and it, it, it's not a particular resource, but in the research that I had done over the months, there was these particular themes that kept popping up. And the one that jumped out at me the most is test to learn, right? You test to learn. And so that means that not only within the cohort, you're doing the work, but then you're branching out within the organization and you're interviewing people and you're canvassing people and um, you're creating these uh, this proof of concept, right? And you're pulling in all of this information and utilizing it. And then you're, if you're, as you're testing to learn, you're also being taught by the process. And so, you know, by gathering feedback, it gives you a 360 degree view of the organization. It, and because you can get into your silos very easily. And even within workshops and cohorts, especially around strategic, th strategic thinking and such, you're in a room and the brain trust is trying to come up with the solution of the future. Whereas in design thinking, it's necessary to pull in feedback from as many data points as you can and, and bring in people from, this, from many perspectives. And then you kind of become your own journalist, your own investigator, um, your own content creator, right? Because you kind of come up with a plan of how you're going to talk to these people and what spots to hit. And then it challenges your own knowledge of the organization or your ignorance of the organization. And so just the continual testing within the process is what I really like because you feel like you're in a, in a laboratory or an incubator. Mm, love that. And so before we get to audience questions and we have some, um, the last thing I usually do is I'll give you a quote and let you react to it. Are you ready? Yes, you are. Okay, quote, whereas moral courage is the righting of wrongs, creative courage, in contrast, is the discovering of new forms, new symbols, new patterns on which a new society can be built, unquote. Rollo May. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, can you say the quote again? Because I'm, yeah. there's two parts to it and I'm trying I to- I know, they are, yeah, it's complex. I thought you guys could take it. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can take yep. it. I can take it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas moral courage is the righting of wrongs, creative courage, in contrast, is the discovering of new forms, new symbols, new patterns on which a new society can be built. I still, I still think the second one is uh, you forgive. The creative courage? Yes, I, st I still believe, this is my reaction to it, that mm -hmm. creative courage still requires moral courage. Mm. Yeah. Right? We, we can, we can be one. creative, but if we don't have the mor moral courage to share the creative ideas um, and understand that the moral courage to do so has a far-reaching effect in, in our context of bringing people in from the margins. We can have all of the wonderful creative ideas, but if we don't have the courage to name what that wrong is, then the people who we serve still sit on the margins. And that includes whether they are people of color, uh, LGBTQ persons, um, women, 
men, uh, people who identify as, uh, as trans, it doesn't, that's one group of people without our creativity aligning with our moral courage who stand, stay on the margins, but, but also people who stay on the margins are those who have, as Steve said, who have been traumatized, who mm-hmm. have been forgotten even in organizations, who have been dismissed because their pedigree uh, was not sufficient for those in power. And so I think it takes, still takes moral courage uh, to implement those things which are products of creative courage. I love that that twist on the quote, and I totally agree. I think the courage is sort of a theme. Mm-hmm. That's why I picked the quote, because I knew you were h- going to hint on that with this yeah. topic. So thank you for bringing it home. We have some questions, so we got a couple minutes left, so I want to make sure we get to them. Um, so Damon is asking, you know, he said, Steve, you touched on leadership support briefly, but I'm curious to hear what tactics have you used to help your leaders and executives create the right conditions for design thinking to thrive in, in the organization? So there, there, there are two ways to look at that. Number one, uh, sometimes uh, it's, it's sort of like what Shakespeare said, some people are born great. Um, some people achieve greatness, others have greatness thrust upon them. Sometimes you have a situation where the moment will force and dictate action. Um, when you look at the racial reckoning after murder of George Floyd, when you look at COVID-19 and, and you look at how it's upended and disrupted society, um, it has forced leaders in order to deal with a reality where for instance, it's no longer diversity as an, a magnanimous act. It's diversify or die, right? It's um, prioritizing wellness in the workplace because otherwise you get the great resignation. So, but then there's there, you have trailblazers or people who, with, I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, my, my superior, my leader, um, the Reverend Doctor, who then, regardless of the moment or the time, stands on a set of principles. So when she says she's bivocational and that with intentionality, she brings her faith into the workplace, not to proselytize, but to be a porthole to the light that motivates her life. Then you have these people who in moments will stand forward, even if they're standing alone. And so it takes a form of, yes, moral courage, but moral courage that is not fixed or locked, moral courage that's based in love. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said that sometimes you have to be willing to lose a job for justice. And so you have to have a certain amount of bravery to say that I am willing to sacrifice. I am willing to put it on the line. I am willing to walk in empathy and co-suffering love. Um, There's a term um, called in a Greek term, splunidzomai, which means to be moved as from the bowels because the source of life is from the bowels. And so you have to bring your fullness into the job and you cannot be constrained by terms like growth, expansion, consensus, efficiency, due diligence. These are all methods in order to get to just ends. And if you don't believe in just ends, then your decision-making process will be individualistic and based in self-centeredness, ego, and greed, and will not prosper you. And so what I would say is that you have to have the moral courage, yes, but then the creativity to know that you've got potholes that you've got to dodge. You've got people who are fixed 
in certain paradigms and they don't want to move. Um, you've got funders or benefactors who may dictate and control you know, finances and you may have to make the decision to walk away. Um, you may have to pivot from government funding. These are all kinds of decisions that you have to make. And sometimes it's just the person in the moment. And sometimes it's the moment and the time that dictates the action. It depends. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Steve. And I'll have Valerie um, address another question from Debbie, because it's HR specific. Um, Debbie asks, any suggestions on getting HR comfortable with doing research to understand how non-executive level employees really feel to ensure we are focusing on the right problem and not symptoms? Yeah. So let me hear that first part again, getting the leaders to understand. Getting HR comfortable with doing HR. research ah. to understand what non, how non-executive level employees really feel yeah. to ensure we are focusing on the right problem. Yeah, I think the... Um, um, I think the, the first thing is, um, not just Debbie, but uh, even uh, other HR leaders, you have to be comfortable with research yourself. And so in doing such research, some of the things that I've done is I've shared content with HR leaders, and um, I, sh I, I, I have roundtables to discuss what I've learned. And I, I treat it almost professorial, right? Bringing them into a space and we uh, as Nicole knows, design thing is co-creating, we're co-learning, right? So we're, mm. we're, we're coming. And, and then what we do is, um, I don't know if you've had, you've used, um, you know, uh, workplace engagement or workplace culture surveys. Then we have another p a data point to align some of our research with, so that it's just not um, reading for reading's sake or research for research sake, but we can then begin to see what that learning or what that research can do within the context of our HR policies or practices uh, to be transformed or introduced. And then when we do that, we're able to then speak to the entirety of the organization to say, we've identified this, we've researched it, we've talked about it, we've looked at best practices, and we found that this is a way to solve for a problem within our organization then it takes the emotion out um, and it takes uh, the fear out because you're grounding yourself in something other than uh, an opinion. Um, I'm having that same struggle now with um, another piece of work. And I always go back to the data, whether it's the regular employee or whether it's leadership. And I say, well, uh, you know, one 10 second example is when people say, well, what about compensation? Um, and the manager goes, well, that position is worth $50,000. Where'd you get that from? Glassdoor. I'm going to help you with that. Glassdoor is self-reported. It is not um, a, a, a comprehensive um, 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 market compensation study. That helps them. That helps the employees. And so now, as we are learning about why we use compensation tools uh, in, you know, in within this context, now we're able, we're, we're preparing HR uh, practitioners to respond to, but also lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. I hope Love that was helpful, Debbie. If I could add to that, um, yep. one of the things that Valerie brought to the organization that's been um, eye-opening, the, the old way of doing things that you just have a market, a market survey, and then you just try to do an apples to apples comparisons. Job in San Francisco pays this, job in LA pays this, job in New York pays this, job in Chicago pays this, that's the number. But now there's a, another component that Valerie added as an equity 
study, right? So it's, it's, then it's not apples to apples anymore. So, all right, we've identified positions, all right, we've identified compensation, but let's look at other factors, right? That from through an equity lens that has, that has to do with geography or um, systemic um, inefficiencies or uh, systemic inequities uh, and, and various other um, factors to come up with that compensation and that number and what it should be. And then that's much more nuanced. And then you're doing these things a lot of times on a case-by-case basis. And so the thing that people misunderstand about justice is that they think that justice means that you're not even, we're, we're equal. Justice is not equality. Justice is being made whole. And so one person being made whole will look different from another person being made whole. But then being comfortable with that apples to orange comparison when it comes to equity. Mm-hmm. Love that. And, you know, I could talk to both of you all day long. So we should do this again. And I know Steve should have his own podcast anyways. I've told him that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you both so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Um, and thank you so much for your perspective. I think it's going to be so valuable for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.